Welcome to season two of Talking PFAS. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. I recommend that you have a listen to season one to catch up on some of the foundational chats we had about PFAS. I'm a journalist and your host, Kayleen Bell. So far, in past episodes of Talking PFAS, the focus has been on just a few communities in Australia that have been contaminated by PFAS chemicals used in firefighting foams on nearby defence bases. PFAS investigation or management is occurring at 27 defence bases in Australia. PFAS-containing firefighting foams have also been used at many non-defence locations in Australia and around the world as well. And PFAS chemistries have also been used in many consumer products too. I recommend to listen to episode 4 to hear what Associate Professor Robert Niven had to say about the scope of PFAS contamination. But in today's episode, I'll be talking about PFAS in the waste streams and their release back into the environment and possible effects of some of these transmission pathways on agriculture and hence the food chain. For the main discussion, I'll be talking with researcher Christy Gallen from the University of Queensland in Brisbane, discussing her research into PFASs in landfill leachate, wastewater treatment plants, biosolids and Queensland floodwaters. So the two major pathways of release of PFAS into the environment from the waste streams would be the the effluent and and biosolids. And which pathway is more significant for which PFAS does depend on the individual properties of those PFAS chemicals themselves. Christy has a background in chemistry and biology and has an honours degree in chemistry. She currently works as a research assistant in Brisbane. Throughout today's episode, I will bring in some facts from Christie's research papers. I will also incorporate other relevant information about PFAS in landfills, biosolids and wastewater treatment plants, and also highlight some brief overseas case study examples from Michigan, Maine and even Alaska. Now to today's episode. Hi Christy, thank you for talking with us today on Talking PFAS. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Can you just tell our listeners a little bit about your bio? Yes, certainly. So I'm a research assistant here at QUASE, which is the Queensland Alliance for Environmental Health Sciences at the University of Queensland. And I've been part of this group since 2010. And my primary uh, focus here has been on the monitoring of uh, environmental contaminants, a range of different chemicals in the environment, particularly water, but also in wastewater, in biosolids, in leachate. And in 2014, I began my part-time PhD, investigating the sources and presence and fate of a a range of these contaminants in the Australian waste stream. And uh, part of that work will form the conversation we're having here today with PFAS. Prior to joining this research group, I had no knowledge of PFAS, probably like a lot of listeners out there, Uh, and I was first introduced to this work uh, in 2011, actually, it was my first uh, work with PFAS, calibrating a water sampler with a PhD student at the time. And uh, since then, my interest in this uh, group of chemicals has really grown because they are just so unique in the, uh, the properties that make them a challenge to monitor and manage. And so I think we're really compelled to, to learn more about them. Why did you decide to research PFAS? Well, it was almost a combination of luck, really. We had a a couple of research projects at the time come across our table here, and I was just one of the research assistants who was available. So it was almost luck that I uh, got involved in this work, but I'm really grateful uh, for the opportunity because it's turned into uh, my PhD, uh, something I didn't foresee at that time. Certainly it's a, a complex story, a complex narrative, and I think we really are only scratching the surface with the work that I've done personally over the past few years. Why is it complex? Well, these are such a unique group of chemicals. They have chemical properties that mean they last a long time in the environment, they have the potential to travel long distances, and they have been found in widespread environmental matrices, you know, water, air, dust, sediment, biosolids, you name it, around the world. So it's a problem or it's a, it's a subject that a lot of people are interested in. 
Yeah, right. Well, when I started this podcast, I used to have a lot of people say to me, why are you doing a whole podcast on PFAS? But it was because as I researched it, I became aware that this is quite large in its scope. Do you, do you agree with that? Yes, these chemicals have been used in very large quantities worldwide and for a wide range of different applications. So it's a big subject area and there's a lot more research and understanding that we need to gain. And they've been used for a long time. We're talking from the 1940s to 50s is what I understand. Yes, that's right. That's when uh, 3M, I believe, began manufacture of these perfluorinated chemicals. Washington-based Interstate Technology Regulatory Council, known as ITRC, has developed a series of fact sheets to summarise the latest science and emerging technologies regarding PFAS. When ITRC Director Patricia Rees came to Sydney in 2018 and spoke at the PFAS Summit, she said PFAS is the number one environmental issue in the United States today and has been for three years. It has outnumbered all other environmental issues by a large, large margin. On an ITRC fact sheet about the history and use of PFAS, it says PFAS was invented in the 1930s and was first used in nonstick coatings for fry pans in the 1940s. In May 2000, 3M, the principal worldwide manufacturer and sole US manufacturer of PFOS, announced a voluntary phase-out of certain PFAS chemistries, which included PFOS, PFHXS and PFOA. Some media articles and government fact sheets have reported that PFAS have been phased out, but this is not true for all PFAS compounds in the very large PFAS universe, and it also doesn't apply to all countries. Now, continuing on with information from the ITRC fact sheet, it says... PFAS are manufactured globally. Recently, increased production of PFOA and related PFAS in China, India and Russia have potentially offset the global reduction anticipated with the US phase-out. PFAS are widely used in consumer products and household applications with a diverse mixture of PFAS found in daily use in varying concentrations. And PFAS compounds are found in a huge amount of commercial and consumer products. Paper and packaging, clothing and carpets, outdoor textiles and sporting equipment, ski and snowboard waxes, non-stick cookware, cleaning agents, fabric softeners, polishes and waxes, and latex paints, pesticides and herbicides, hydraulic fluids, windshield wipers, paints, varnishes, dyes and inks, adhesives, medical products, personal care products, for example, shampoo, hair conditioners, sunscreen, cosmetics, toothpaste, dental floss. All of these PFAS-containing products present challenges for the waste industry to manage at the end of life when these products end up in landfills or go down the drain to enter wastewater treatment plants. And uh, they're still in use uh, to this day. And as I discussed with the scientists, we're dealing with as much PFAS that's ever been created now in our lifetime. Well, these chemicals have got the nickname or the reputation of being called these eternal chemicals. So their chemical structure makes them inherently long-lived in the environment. So yes, unless we apply some very strong sort of elimination processes, they don't break down like many other chemical groups that are out there. I understand that you've been the lead author and the lead researcher for four PFAS papers. Am I correct? Yes, that's right. And I have co-authored and contributed to other research work as well. So well, let's talk about the papers that you were lead researcher, lead author on. So yes, I have four lead author papers concerning PFAS. The first was published in 2014 and this was in the context of PFAS in the urban river environment. The first paper we are discussing is number one in the show notes. First, here is some quick background for listeners who are not familiar with the Queensland flood history that Gallen refers to, taken from her 2014 paper. In January 2011, severe flooding occurred in urban areas of the city of Brisbane. Low-lying properties began to flood on the 11th of January 2011, with floodwaters peaking two days later on the 13th of January, resulting in approximately 23,000 flooded properties. 
Over the month of January, 36% of the volume of Moreton Bay was discharged from the Brisbane River. The resulting flood plume covered an area of approximately 400 kilometres squared in Moreton Bay and approximately 1,040,000 tonnes of sediment was deposited. In addition, nine out of southeast Queensland's 29 wastewater treatment plants were affected by the flooding, resulting in critical failures of treatment systems and the discharge of untreated sewerage through overflow relief structures into floodwaters. Now back to Christy. At the time of our interview, way back in February, a severe flood was occurring in Townsville. So we undertook some sampling in the Brisbane River, upstream and downstream, following the floods in 2011, which is quite topical considering Townsville is flooding at the moment. And we wanted to gain a sense of the urban uh, input of PFAS into the environment. So we analysed these water samples for a range of PFAS chemicals and estimated the amount or the loads in kilograms of of PFAS that may have entered Moreton Bay during that flood event. I estimated the loads of PFOA and PFOS, two well-known, well-studied of the PFAS family, and came up with an estimate of around six kilos discharged during the flood event for PFOA and about 12 kilos for PFOS and to gain a sense of how big or small that number is we have done some estimates of how much PFOA and PFOS has been released in wastewater effluent and it's a comparatively smaller number than the regular amount of PFAS that's moving through our water system as part of domestic household use. We will talk about Christie's interesting and important findings in relation to PFAS chemicals in wastewater treatment plants in Australia later in this episode. This research really adds to the PFAS monitoring data for Australia. There's very little monitoring data for PFAS in Australian rivers, in Australian coastal waters. So this is one of the first that gave us a sense of PFAS in the Australian environment. Uh, And urban flooding has, I think, previously been overlooked as a source of PFAS into the environment. Christy also said to me in an email after our interview that it is hard to gauge the significance of PFAS loads in floods as we don't know the stockpiles of PFAS we're dealing with. And she said floods are not a source of PFAS in themselves, but rather a transport pathway into the environment. Of course, everything else that's in an urban environment is discharged as well. It's not just PFAS. PFAS. Floodwaters are well known to carry loads of nutrients, pesticides and sediment over vast distances. However, Gallon's research paper says the composition of other pollutants carried by urban floodwaters has not been well characterised. Christy and her colleagues also noted that the contamination of river and coastal waters in association with urban areas with PFAS has been studied worldwide. However, to their knowledge, no data is available on the role of major floods on PFAS's input into the environment. But it's very topical considering that Townsville and North Queensland and other urban centres can be subject to floods. It doesn't happen often, but it, it happens. Is your paper about the floodwaters from urban areas and the amount of PFAS in them, do you think it's a representative example of any flooding from urban areas in Australia? Well, these results aren't really surprising that we are seeing PFAS moving out of these urban environments. We are using products that contain PFAS all the time so your carpets and textiles things like that have had PFAS used in them quite often and so once these residential and business areas have been flooded it stands to reason that they may be a source of PFAS into the environment as well as normal surface runoff from urban areas wastewater treatment discharge industrial discharge they could all be sources of PFAS. In the floodwaters you've got wastewater treatment plant over flow anyway haven't you? Yes that's right so the wastewater treatment plants may be contributing to the the PFAS during that time as well. It's a real cocktail really a soup of PFAS and other chemical contaminants that are present in those flooded areas. So because like you said the floodwaters go through factories it goes through homes 
It, it is very difficult to pinpoint the exact source of where PFAS may be coming from and which sources are contributing the most. You know, is it the 20,000 households worth of carpet that's leaching into the floodwaters that's more significant or is it the wastewater treatment plants, those areas? We're not quite sure. Can you just tell me a little bit about the conclusions that you came to when you did that study? Sure. Well, I believe this is the first study of its type in Australia looking at floodwaters as a source of environmental contaminants into the environment. We can conclude from this study that floodwaters may have been a a previously overlooked source of, of PFAS into the surrounding environments. We do know already that urban areas can be hotspots for environmental contaminants just as a product of their normal use and disposal. That was before you'd done any work on landfills or wastewater treatment plants. So at the time, you said that flooding of urban areas has likely been overlooked as a significant source of PFAS into the environment. Given your further research with the landfills, biosolids and wastewater treatment plants, would that still be a true statement? So we have done further work looking at the loads of PFAS being discharged from wastewater treatment plants in particular. And so we have some rough estimates, some knowledge about how much PFAS is entering the environment through that pathway. And so based on what I know now with my further research, I believe that the mass of PFAS coming out of wastewater treatment plants is a more significant, is a larger contributor to PFAS into the environment versus these flood events, which are really few and far between. It's the effluent and wastewater treatment plants that are providing a more constant input of PFAS into the environment. What further research do you think needs to happen to add to the work that you've already done as a foundation? Well, can I just say that the concentrations of PFAS that we found in Moreton Bay, in the dams and in the river would be considered quite low. They're in the low nanograms per litre and in some cases in the sub-nanogram per litre category. So while these masses seem large, the environmental concentration is exceedingly low. The Australian drinking water level for PFOS and PFHXS combined is 0.07 micrograms a litre. Do you know if the numbers that you found in Moreton Bay were higher or lower than that? They were certainly much lower than that 70 nanogram, 0.07 microgram per litre benchmark there. So the concentrations we observed of PFOS and and many of the other perfluorinated chemicals in those samples was around the one nanogram per litre range. So not significant, really? No. One of the conclusions that Christy and her team came to following this initial look at floodwaters was that further investigation is needed to gain a comprehensive understanding of the distribution of PFAS in Australian rivers and coastal areas. Can we talk about the work that you've done, Christy, with wastewater treatment plants? And can I just clarify, is a wastewater treatment plant the same as a sewerage treatment plant? Yes, I have used those terms interchangeably. They can be described in both ways. Okay, great. And I think when we spoke on the pre-interview, you told me that grey water, say from laundries, is included in the wastewater treatment plants? Yes, that's right. So the toilet water that you would flush, the black water, as well as the laundry grey water are all entering into our wastewater treatment plants here in Australia. The next research paper of Christie's that we are talking about can be found in items 2, 3 and 4 in the show notes, discussing PFASs in biosolids, landfills and wastewater treatment plants. And it was very hard to separate these areas into different discussions as they are all interconnected in some way. Landfill leachate often ends up in wastewater treatment plants. Wastewater treatment plants produce sewerage sludge, which is often turned into biosolids, with the majority of this being used on agricultural land as a soil enhancement. So I have conducted two studies in wastewater treatment plants in Australia. The first study uh, was published in 2016 and we sampled biosolids in 16 different wastewater treatment plants in Australia. Biosolids were collected from six states in Australia. The participating wastewater treatment plants did not wish to be named. 
and we measured PFAS in all of these biosolid samples and um, we tried to understand how much PFAS uh, was leaving the wastewater treatment plants in these biosolids but we also wanted to see in parallel whether landfills and the uh, leachate that was discharged from landfills was significantly contributing to the loads of PFAS in those biosolids and this was the first PFAS data published for biosolids in Australia. Um, well done. And those sites, were any of them in known contamination zones or management zones for, say, Department of Defence or where firefighting foam was used? So no, they weren't chosen specifically to target those regions. These wastewater treatment plants were just meant to be representative of everyday Australia and, and everyday input from Australians into wastewater treatment plants and out of wastewater treatment plants. And that was a mix of ranges of, of wastewater treatment plants, large, small. Can, can you just describe the mix for us? Yes, certainly. So we wanted to create sort of a representative snapshot of PFAS in biosolids in Australia. So we selected wastewater treatment plants that were considered larger in capital cities as well as smaller regional areas in, in different geographical regions and that had different treatment processes as well to try and just gain an overall snapshot of what's happening in wastewater treatment plants because up until that point we had no monitoring data available to us. The biosolid guidelines uh, at the time, uh, PFAS was not one of the required monitoring. Is that a required monitoring now as far as you understand? Not as far as I understand, no. Although interest in, in these chemicals in the waste stream is, is certainly growing, so there, there may be some voluntary uh, uptake of that. Why is PFAS in biosolids an issue? Well, biosolids are an interesting story. In Australia, we reuse a lot of our biosolids. So at the time of publishing this study, about 70% of our biosolids are reused for different land applications. So, you know, land rehabilitation, agriculture, different things like that. On an ITRC fact sheet about the history and use of PFAS, it says... PFAS have been found in domestic sewerage sludge. US EPA states that more than half of the sludge produced in the United States is applied to agricultural land as biosolids. Therefore, biosolids application can be a source of PFAS to the environment. The most abundant PFAS found in biosolids, PFOS and PFOA, are the same as in wastewater treatment plant effluent. Application of biosolids as a soil amendment can result in a transfer of PFAS to soil. These PFAS can then be available for uptake by plants and soil organisms. There are indications some PFASs can enter the food chain through the use of biosolids amended soil. In an article for The Intercept by New York journalist Sharon Lerner in June this year, she refers to a 2001 study sponsored by 3M which revealed that 12 samples of food from around America, including ground beef, bread, apples and green beans, tested positive for either PFOS or PFOA. Sharon's article said there are several possible ways the industrial chemicals enter food supplies, including contaminated groundwater and through sewerage sludge, which has been spread on crops around the country for decades. What did you find as far as concentration levels of PFAS in biosolids? So we found PFAS in all of the biosolids from all of the, the studied wastewater treatment plants and the concentrations were in the, in the low nanogram per gram range, comparable or lower than many different international studies that we compared. Levels of PFOS detected in the current study are lower than the maximums detected in Switzerland, Spain and the US and similar to levels detected in Finland. Mean concentrations of PFOA and PFOS in this biosolids study typically fell within the range detected in the same international studies. However, maximum concentrations in China were significantly higher. And with these concentrations together with an estimate of the mass of biosolids that were produced from each wastewater treatment plant, we could estimate a load, an annual load, an annual mass of perfluorinated chemicals leaving wastewater treatment plants in biosolids. Did your calculations reveal that that is a significant amount of PFAS going back to agriculture? 
Sometimes the difficulty can be with the research that we've done is that there's not a lot of other similar research to compare it against, both in Australia and, and worldwide as well. So the impacts and the scale, the significance of what we're finding here, it can be a little bit hard to really pin down. But um, what we have demonstrated is we can see PFAS in our environment, in our in our river and coastal environment, around urban areas, and that its PFAS continues to enter our waste systems, the landfills and wastewater treatment plants, and that we can measure loads of these PFAS then being re-released into the environment. So the two major pathways of release of PFAS into the environment from the waste streams would be the effluent and biosolids. And which pathway is more significant for which PFAS does depend on the individual properties of those PFAS chemicals themselves, whether they're more water soluble and they stay in that water phase, or if they are water insoluble and tend to sorb to that biosolid matter. Gallon's research says with approximately 770,000 wet tonnes of biosolids applied to agricultural land each year, it represents an important pathway for potential re-entry of contaminants including PFAS into the environment, the food chain and humans. Now stepping away from Gallon's work for a few moments, I just want to mention an example where PFAS from sewage sludge in biosolids has caused major problems for a dairy farmer in Maine. Pat Rizzuto is a reporter for Bloomberg Environment in Washington, D.C., who was reported on the tragic story of one dairy farmer in Maine, Fred Stone. Pat shared Fred's story in Bloomberg Environment's podcast, Parts Per Billion, and the episode is called The Farmer Who Got Punished for Reporting Pollution. Fred Stone is a third-generation dairy farmer in Maine and PFAS chemicals have contaminated his 90-acre farm. At first, nobody knew the source of PFAS onto Fred's property, but then what the state determined was that the PFAS were in the land because of biosolids from wastewater and paper mill sludge that Fred had spread on his farm as part of a state-encouraged program. Fred did not have a regulatory requirement to notify people about the PFAS contamination, but he told reporter Pat Rizzuto... First choice is to say nothing because the state doesn't test for this. Or the second is to notify the dairy and notify the state that there might be a problem. We did the latter, um, which that's the only thing we could do, really. And these cows, this land, are our assets. You know, we just wanted to milk our cows and be left the hell alone. Once Fred made the difficult decision to go public about the contamination, his licence to sell milk was suspended and he hasn't sold milk since. His farm has been without income for three years and he's now pursuing his legal options. Special thanks to host of Parts Per Billion podcast, David Schultz, for allowing me to play that small segment. It's a wonderful interview and I do recommend you have a listen and I'll put the link in the show notes. Now to Alaska. PFAS was discovered in compost, biosolids made from treated sewage sludge and sold by Golden Heart Utilities for use on home gardens and lawns, resulting in the immediate suspension of all compost sales at the end of May 2019. And that's in a report called Threats to Drinking Water and Public Health in Alaska by the Alaska Community Action on Toxics, ACAT. Now to Michigan, and then we'll go back to Christy. In Michigan, journalists Garrett Allison and Paula Gardner are doing some excellent full-time reporting on PFAS in the Michigan area for MLive. In June 2019, Paula wrote an article titled The Hunt for PFAS in Michigan is Turning to Farm Fields where Concerns are Growing about Possible Contamination in Treated Human Waste Used as Fertiliser. Part of this article said... Scientists are analysing test results from more than a dozen state agricultural sites that received the fertiliser known as biosolids from wastewater treatment plants that were flagged in 2018 for high concentrations of the chemicals flowing into their systems from industrial sources or landfills. A handful of wastewater facilities, including plants in Wixom and Ionia, where testing found very high PFAS levels in liquid effluent, have already been told to stop land-applying biosolids. More testing is planned 
and the state is considering a threshold for how much PFAS would be allowed in landfill applied biosolids. When you measured the biosolids, did you find PFOS as often as you found PFOA? PFOA is the more water-soluble of the two, and so we expect the larger proportion of the total load of PFOA leaving a wastewater treatment plant to be in that effluent. So PFOS being less water-soluble, we detected somewhat more frequently than PFOA and in higher concentrations as well. Um, That's to be expected just based on the inherent chemical properties of the chemicals themselves. But once again, the major release pathway we believe is in the effluent. You found that PFAS is in biosolids and in the treated effluent that's coming out of wastewater treatment plants. Do you know which one is more prevalent? So based on the physicochemical properties of PFOS. It's a tricky one because it is partly water soluble but partly water insoluble as well. That's what makes these group of chemicals so challenging to monitor and measure and remediate. Yeah, that's right. With PFOS, we have detected that in both the effluent and the biosolids, but a estimation that we have made looking at the total load of PFOS leaving a wastewater treatment plant, our estimates suggest that the effluent is more so the main source of PFOS leaving a wastewater treatment plant. And that goes for the PFOA as well. It's even more water soluble than PFOS and we believe that the majority proportion of PFOA leaving a wastewater treatment plant is also in that effluent. What sort of concentrations of PFAS did you find in the treated effluent coming out of the wastewater treatment plant? So if we stick to the two best known and well studied PFAS chemicals, PFOA and PFOS, on average we found a mean and average concentration of PFOA in the effluent of 22 nanograms per litre and for the PFOS 25 nanograms per litre so fairly comparable levels there. So when we compare those levels that you found with the Australian drinking water guidelines how do they compare with those? The levels that we detected in the effluent were well below those of the national drinking water guidelines so the PFOA guideline is 560 nanograms per litre. We detected uh, an average concentration of 22 and for PFOS that drinking water level level is 70 nanograms per litre and we detected an average of 25 nanograms per litre. You have to remember also that the effluent is diluted significantly in the receiving water so that concentration that I just told you about, that mean concentration effluent is that raw effluent from the pipe, it's directly coming out, it's not what's in the environment. Did you look into where that treated effluent ends up when you did your study? This was something that really interested me, but I actually found it quite difficult to find information about where this water was going and what, it, what its reuse was. Okay, and why do you think the information was difficult? Is it, is it just that it's not published or wastewater treatment providers didn't want to provide that sort of information? I was looking uh, online for publicly available resources and I had difficulty finding anything that would tell me how much water was reused in Australia. I, I found some very general information but not the level that would have been really interesting and useful. What sort of information is needed to make the job easier for researchers doing this kind of work? There's a lot of information about where biosolids are being reused, so the different types of land applications, you know, stockpiling, heading back into landfills for disposal. So that information to work out the pathway that this PFAS contained in those biosolids might be travelling. And I couldn't quite find that same information about where recycled water was being used. So, you know, water that's being reused on golf courses or for different types of land uses that might have been helpful to see where this water is really going and what could be the risks around that water reuse. Australian researcher Timothy Coggan and colleagues from RMIT University in Melbourne and Australian Contaminated Land Consultants Association in Victoria have just recently published a study investigating recycled water use as a diffuse source of PFAS to groundwater in Melbourne, Australia. The purpose of this study was to investigate the contribution of PFASs to groundwater at a location where recycled water from a wastewater treatment plant is used to irrigate crops. I plan to have a talk with Timothy next year for the podcast about his team's findings, but in the conclusions they state, 
the use of contaminated recycled water from a wastewater treatment plant for irrigation and subsequent groundwater infiltration has far-reaching implications throughout the world. The use of both recycled water or groundwater contaminated with PFAS will result in the redistribution of PFASs into the environment. This redistribution of PFASs may then result in the risk of human exposure as the water is used for drinking and agriculture and requires further research. I believe this research was funded by the Federal Department of Environment The landfill and wastewater treatment plant studies, the two studies that we did, were funded by the Federal Department of Environment and the floodwater study that we did back in 2014, that was done independently at the time and we took that upon ourselves to do that. Did they have any contribution into which wastewater treatment providers you would look at? No, so we undertook the site selection independently. We wanted to get a what we call a representative snapshot of wastewater treatment plants. So we wanted some that were large, as I mentioned earlier, you know, in capital cities, some in regional areas. We just wanted a snapshot of what was out there and there was no agenda for the site selection. Really, it came down to who was willing to participate and, and who was willing to volunteer. Uh, the sites were under no obligation to offer samples or, or contribute or participate. We just simply went to them and asked if they would be interested in this research. And, and many of them, well, they all were those that participated. Okay. And you said, I think you said to me when we had our pre-interview that they were interested because they really wanted to know themselves, correct? Yes, that's right. Because Because if regulations change, they need to know what's in their systems. Yes, and I gave each of the participating sites some feedback about the the concentrations that we monitored there, and they could then use that information for their own purposes. Did you find any kind of filtering going on in the wastewater treatment plants that you studied, like reverse osmosis or granulated activated carbon to remove PFAS? Is that a standard thing that you find in these wastewater treatment plants? So none of the wastewater treatment plants that participated in our study had those technologies. As far as you know, they weren't filtering for PFAS? No, not specifically, no. There were no PFAS-specific treatment processes. They were everyday wastewater treatment plants using the standard treatment methods. On an ITRC fact sheet about the history and use of PFAS, it says, Consumer and industrial use of PFAS-containing materials, including disposal of landfill leachate and firefighting foam, results in the discharge of PFAS to wastewater treatment plants. With concentrations of some PFAS ranging up to hundreds of nanograms per litre, Effluents are believed to be major point sources of these chemicals in surface water. Leachate treatment by wastewater treatment plants is common prior to discharge to surface water or distribution for agricultural or commercial use. But standard wastewater treatment plant technologies may do little to reduce or remove PFAS and discharge of landfill leachate treated at wastewater treatment plants represents a secondary source of certain PFAS release to the environment. What was something significant that you found with the influent coming in versus the effluent going out? So when we measured the concentrations of PFAS in both the influent and effluent, we found something interesting, which was the effluent sample, so that treated water actually had higher concentrations of PFAS. And uh, this is reflected in other studies of a similar nature. And it suggests that something's happening to these PFAS chemicals during the treatment process. There's some kind of transformation or enhancement of the levels. And do you have any idea why that is? The suite of PFAS chemicals is quite large and it also contains what we call precursor chemicals. So these are larger perfluorinated chemicals that have the potential to be broken down by physical or chemical or biological processes to form smaller PFAS molecules and many of them are the perfluorinated chemicals that we've monitored in our studies. So PFOA, PFOS. It is very complicated and I certainly don't even understand all the chemical mechanisms that go into this transformation. But essentially, these precursor chemicals can be large, branched, complex chemicals that can be chemically chopped up and make 
smaller perfluorinated chemicals, which may be either long chain or short chain. Did that surprise you that the treated effluent coming out was higher in PFAS? Initially, I had thought I'd made a mistake in the laboratory because logically you think there's been a treatment process happening. You would expect lower concentrations. I know it's difficult because each of the studies were very unique, but they're sort of interconnected in some way. So from all of your research of PFAS in landfills, wastewater treatment plants, biosolids, and even floodwaters... What stands out to you as the most significant findings in relation to PFAS? So despite some regulatory action against these types of chemicals, we are still finding that PFOS and other perfluorinated chemicals are still entering the waste stream, uh, that being landfills and the wastewater stream. And that's partly due to the long service life of the products that they're being used in. One of the take-home messages, I think, is that the management of these chemicals is going to be a long-term solution. You know, the withdrawal of PFOS, just as an example, occurred in about the year 2000, and we're still seeing PFOS-containing products entering landfills and PFOS in our influent, which means it's in use, at least in the domestic environment, for sure. The solution is going to take possibly decades to come about and the management of these chemicals may take a significant amount of time. What regulations or response from the government, and I'm talking all levels of government here, federal, state, local, what do you think is needed to address the problem of PFAS still entering the waste stream and being released back to the environment? How can we sort this problem? A really big question and one that everyone is asking. I think it will take a multidisciplinary approach and bringing people from all areas, you know, the scientists and researchers, as well as industry and government and regulators on board, and putting our heads together. My research is starting to pull together the patterns that we can see of PFAS entering the waste stream. There are possibly several points in this story that you could intervene and try and manage. So you can control the source of PFAS, you can try and contain or immobilise it in some way, or you can come in at the end and you, you have to try and remediate or rehabilitate. So source control means that we stop it entering the waste stream altogether and that's going to prove to be very difficult because of the diffuse nature of these chemicals. They're used so widely and in so many different products and applications that that will be a challenge trying to work out what's the major entry point of these chemicals into the waste stream and if you're not going to accept those into landfills or you're not going to accept that type of waste into wastewater treatment plants, well what are you going to do with it? Gail Sloan is the CEO of Waste Management Association of Australia, known as WAMA. It is the national peak body for the waste and resource recovery industry. Gail spoke at the 2018 PFAS Summit in Sydney. I'm just going to play a little bit of her explanation of WAMA's role and a couple of the challenges that PFAS presents for her industry. WAMA, which some of you may be or may not be members of, we're the national peak body of the waste industry. We have over 2,000 members nationally. We cover the gamut of the industry, everything from the residual landfill management, contaminated land, right through resource recovery. PFAS is having an impact on our industry because we don't really understand it. And as we heard earlier with the federal government, it's not clear what's happening and it's not clear what's happening in each state's regulatory. So we're kind of swimming in grey or swimming in PFAS for better words. Gail said there needs to be better source control to stop PFAS entering the waste stream in the first place. I don't understand how this stuff is still coming into market. Like, I actually think that we need to have extended producer responsibility or a polluter pays associated with this product because you were going to have to deal with it in multiple ways. And this is a role for federal government. They actually do have obligations and the main legislation around the extended producer responsibility. This is coming to market. People need to be paying for it, paying for the remediation. This is the biggest challenge I have in my industry is that it's like, oh, well, you got it now. It's in your gate. <laughs> you deal with it. Landfill operators actually retrospectively having to fund the remediation or the management of that is really, really challenging. 
This is a real challenge for us when we have these contaminants. We're not necessarily sure we've got them, we're testing for them. And then how do you resource recover when you've got these contaminants within the product? As contaminants emerge as a problem, my industry ends up having to take responsibility for it. And that's just not fair because <laughs> it's not easy to deal with these products. And she believes the federal government needs to ban the chemicals as per the Stockholm Agreement on persistent organic pollutants. The Stockholm Agreement is an international treaty and it has listed PFOS and PFOA. Australia is yet to ratify and implement that ban. Just in summary, absolutely we actually need to phase out PFOS, PFAS, whether they're good or bad or indifferent, but there's a concern, there are contaminant and there's alternatives we need to do it. So, you know, please Australian federal government get on with signing uh, the international treaty because I think that's only a good thing. What I've seen from the federal government response today, we tend to focus just very much on risk and liability and obligation, which absolutely I completely understand from a defence perspective with their site and their land management and their interaction with their communities, but from a bigger obligation from federal government, how are we looking after our broader public when we know 95% of it is not AFFF and defence? Why are we not having that conversation? I liken this to be like the next BPA or the next asbestos. Is it? I don't actually know, right? But And if I don't know and I'm fairly immersed in this across my industry, how does the public know? So the problem still remains, really. It seems like we need to be monitoring for PFAS coming out of wastewater treatment plants, which I don't believe is standard. Is that correct? Yes, I don't believe that PFAS monitoring of effluent is regulated or a requirement yet at this time. So developing a almost a baseline of these chemicals in the Australian waste stream would be helpful and looking at the profiles of PFAS in different wastewater treatment plants, in different landfills, can we start to recognise patterns in these PFAS profiles based on the characteristics of the sites? So for landfills, for example, is rainfall, is uh, are specific waste types, is the pH of the leachate, are all these different factors contributing to the type and levels of PFAS that we're seeing. Similarly in wastewater treatment plants is a particular waste treatment process contributing or enhancing the transformation of these precursor chemicals into these problem PFAS that we're seeing. Uh, We don't quite know the answer to that question yet and that's what my research part of this monitoring uh, journey that I'm on is, is trying to inform. So, okay, so that's a research monitoring, but from the government, do you think that it should be mandatory that leachate is monitored and tested and treated effluent coming out is tested for PFAS? Do you think that's necessary to protect the environment? I think you do need that tool in order to do any kind of decision making or uh, make any kind of changes to the operation of a landfill or a wastewater treatment plant. These things are going to cost money to change and you need to be best informed and so the only way you can do that I I see is by beginning a a monitoring program and what would that look like I'm not quite sure but you'd need to consider where you monitor what points within a landfill or wastewater treatment plant that you are monitoring how often you are monitoring the frequency and and the variability summer winter as we've mentioned before it's a chemical that's been in use for so long but it does appear to be a new problem all of a sudden we've realized we have lots of PFAS you know coming through our waste streams and what do we do with it so I do think that monitoring is the first step to understanding and then therefore managing this chemical group. Do you plan to do further research on this Christy? Yes I do that would I think be essential in better understanding these chemicals particularly in landfills you know understanding the factors that may influence the concentrations and types of PFAS that we're seeing we're not sure why we're seeing what we're seeing and the patterns that we're seeing so we want to understand more about how these chemicals are behaving and their fate in the waste stream. And I do understand that some leachate is discharged straight to the sewer correct? That's one method of of treatment, yes. Or or tankered to a water treatment plant. That's right, yes. Some landfills manage their leachate, in a sense, on site through evaporation ponds and it's recirculated through. Another method is to discharge to wastewater treatment plants, either directly to sewer or through tankering it. And there are trade waste agreements in place. Could you give me an idea how many wastewater treatment plants or landfills there are in Australia? It's a little bit tricky actually to get those exact numbers. From the reading and research that I've done, there's an estimate that there's around about a thousand operating landfills. Of course, there are closed 
the numbers of which are unknown. Similarly for the wastewater treatment plant, I think we have an estimate of around 700, I believe. And in our study, we have collectively sampled at 35 landfills and about 16 wastewater treatment plants. But we try to select those sites to be representative of the greater number of them. So that range of waste types, treatment processes, sizes, geographical locations. And and in your opinion, do you believe that your research has shown to be representative? Well, I believe it's the best we've got so far. We can always do better, of course, but at that time, we got as many landfills and wastewater treatment plants on board as we possibly could within the time frame that we had. Mm -hmm. Did you find that closed landfills had higher levels of PFAS or is it the newer landfills that are more of a problem? So our research did show a difference in the average concentration of PFAS between landfills that were still open and operating and those that had been closed. And we found that the closed landfills, the older landfills, actually had much, much lower levels of PFAS. This could be for a couple of different reasons, we think. Uh, Number one is that the waste that entered those landfills was before the peak of PFAS use. So uh, the peak of PFAS use was in the 90s, around the early 2000s. And so some of those landfills may not have accepted waste a large proportion of waste that contained PFAS. Also, because they are older, the waste that was contained in those landfills might have been essentially flushed and washed of PFAS. So the PFAS stockpile within those landfills has just depleted over time naturally. Right. So the research that you have done, do you think that we have not reached the tipping point yet in Australia, you know, of how much PFAS is going to be found in landfills and waste water treatment plants? Would that be a fair statement? Well, we did find a relationship between the age of a landfill and the concentration of PFAS. And so the younger landfills did have higher concentration than than those that were older. And I'm talking about operating landfills still. So it is possible that we are yet to observe the peak, if you will, of PFAS-containing waste that's entered landfills. And you have no idea. Nobody has any idea when that peak might be. That's exactly right. We have no idea. Do you believe that this is an area that really needs more attention? I do believe so because of just the unique nature of these chemicals. As I've mentioned before, their longevity in the environment and their resistance to breakdown processes. They're a group of chemicals that we need to keep an eye on because they're going to be with us for a long time. What has the response been to your research in the industry or by the Department of Environment that commissioned you? Well, since I've conducted this research, I have done a number of presentations at conferences in Australia, and my research has been well cited by others in the industry and in research as well. So I feel like it's really contributing positively to the story and it really serves to inform those who are making the decisions around regulation and the practical elements of landfill and wastewater treatment plant management. So my information can feed into that process. Into finding solutions? I certainly hope so. Okay, great. Thank you, Christy. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion and this has been the last episode of Talking PFAS for season two. I will be taking a longer break before bringing you season three. I aim to be back with you around May 2020 with a short series on firefighters and PFAS. The class actions of the residents of Williamtown, Catherine and Oakey is due to commence in April 2020. So when I return, I will begin with an update on what's happening in communities, what's happening with those class actions, and then I'll be bringing you a special edition about PFAS and firefighters. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you can share it with somebody else in the break. And I look forward to coming back in 2020. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget, you can follow Talking PFAS on Twitter. I tweet nationally and globally about PFAS. So the Twitter handle is Talking PFAS. And you can also email me at talkingpfas at gmail.com. And remember, all information in today's episode is copyright. Please share, but contact me for reuse permissions. Thank you very much. See you next time.